Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Lee Stranahan, thank you. It was a privilege for me to meet you last weekend. You're tuned into Radio Stranahan. And now, here's your presenter, Lee Stranahan. Good afternoon, everybody. It's a Thursday. But you knew that, right? Did I tell you? Am I breaking news by telling you it's a Thursday? You not only look great, but you smell great. This is Lee Stranahan, America's finest reporter, once again making you smarter as I do every single day. A couple of programming announcements, including a new Stranahan report newsletter that went out today. Oh, it was good to get that sent out. I got to say, it was good to get that sent out. It's an idea I've had for a while, and it was good to be able to execute it. By the way, for those of you keeping track at home, and no betting on this, please. As David Letterman would say, no wagering. My blood sugar this morning was 84. So that's pretty good, right? I think I need to have Dr. Annette Bosworth on more, and that will make my blood sugar go down. I think that's the core. Maybe I'm confusing correlation and causation. I don't know. But all I know is I had my doctor on yesterday, Annette Bosworth. Great segment. Excerpts from that will be up very soon with her talking about this ketogenic diet that I've been doing. So with less insulin, my blood sugar is down below 100. Now, I say that, and it'll probably spike tomorrow because I just jinxed myself. That's the way it goes. Again, maybe that's not a scientific principle, but that does seem to be the way it goes. So the programming announcement is that the Stranahan Report, my early morning roundup of what's going on in the news, went out, the first one went out, the second one will go out tomorrow, and then it'll be the third one the day after that, and then you get the idea. I'm not going to keep going. I could just keep counting and prove to you how high I can count, but I'm not going to do that. It would kill the segment, though. It would just kill, it would also kill the audience, but that's why I'm not going to do it. We have some breaking news. Let's talk about a couple things that are breaking. The first breaking news piece, as we are here live, is that Sean Spicer has been named as the White House press secretary for Donald Trump. Spicer's a Republican, longtime Republican operative type person, you know, an experienced RNC. Operative is not the right word, but, but he's very experienced doing RNC type communications. So a professional choice. Uh, we'll see how combative he is. And uh, by the way, I'm not saying I think combative is good necessarily. I think especially early in the Trump presidency, professional will be combative. I would have loved to have seen Sonny Johnson or Milo Yiannopoulos or... I don't say me. I have no interest in... By the way, no one's asked. Before I say this, let me just point out that nobody's ever asked. But I have no interest in working in the White House, none. No interest in doing that end of politics. I have bigger game to fry. I think I mixed my metaphors there. I think it's fish to fry. But if you think about it, you can fry game. It's yummy, in fact. 
So uh, I have no interest in doing that, but uh, I'm I'm totally fine with Sean Spicer as the choice. Also, this morning it was announced that Kellyanne Conway Conway, forgive me. I don't know why I threw the A in there. Kellyanne Conway, the campaign manager, the successful woman campaign manager for misogynist Donald Trump. I know, that stymies them. That throws them off every time. The successful campaign manager for Donald Trump will be counsel to Donald Trump. I don't know if that's like consigliere, a godfather thing. I don't know if that means she's going to bury bodies. I'm not sure what counselor is. Possibly allow the president to talk about his feelings. Perhaps that's what it is. Perhaps counselor in the sense of camp counselor and help him make log cabins out of popsicle sticks. I'm not sure it's possible, but we know that Kellyanne Conway, not Conway, Conway, will be in that position. Again, that's fine. I was very happy with the first the first announcements you remember were Priebus as chief of staff and Bannon as head of strategy and I was totally fine with that. That's what I that's what I want. That's what I care about. I'm fine with Priebus as chief of staff again, especially early in the Trump administration when he's got a lot against him and a lot at stake. So that's fine. Those are those are the uh, breaking news announcements. Spicer just announced as press secretary. By the way, I'm sure the liberals won't like it. Why? Because they don't like anything. That's a topic for another day. So, as I mentioned, the Stranahan report came out this morning. If you want to sign up for that, it makes you smarter every morning. Go to Stranahan.com. That's where you can find that. Next programming note. I got to go through. This is like parliamentary procedure. I have to go through this stuff. And then we'll get to the more meat. There's been a little bit of meat. There's been a piece of bologna so far. But we need to get to the juicy, steak-like, medium-rare, sizzling center of the show. We have two guests today. Let's get this out of the way. Two guests. My friend Christina Bateri will be on later. Christina is one of the founders of the Tea Party. But more importantly, she's a friend of mine. Is that more important? Who can say? But Christine is somebody who I've known, oh my gosh. Here's how I time this. So my son and assistant, Shane, is 24 years old. I knew Christina when Shane was a twinkle in my eye. That meant before he was born. So I've known Christine. Christina, Shane's 24 and a half. My, his mom was pregnant for nine months. You see all the math I'm doing for you here? So that would be 25. So I've known Christina 26 years, something like that. I think I've known her 26 years, possibly 27. That is frightening to me. But Christina's a person I used to work with. We used to share an office at the high-tech company we worked for in Topeka, Kansas. No, that's not a joke. I say it with no irony whatsoever. Christina and I used to work together. She'll be a guest on the show today. But like I say, she's one of the founders of the Tea Party, highly politically astute, and she's a frequent guest on my friend's David Webb show on Sirius XM Satellite Radio. 
also coming up to talk about the dangers of jihad is Eric Allen Bell. Eric Allen Bell's got a fascinating story about how he went from the left to the right. You know I always like those stories because I did the same thing, right? I went through the same thing. So Eric Allen Bell will be on in the second hour. The other big programming announcement, now hold on to your Kleenex. I know this is going to be shocking and upsetting to you, but Radio Strandham will be taking next week off. There you go. I know. I know. You're crying. I, no, no, don't don't do that on my part. Look, here's why. First off, it makes sense. It's the week between Christmas, which, by the way, is Sunday, for those of you who celebrate Christmas, which is pretty much all of you. So for the, just because you do. People celebrate every – it doesn't make any difference what religion you are. People generally do something – they celebrate Christmas in some way. It's a date you at least notice, right? So that's going to be on Sunday, and then New Year's is the next weekend. So that's the week – next week is the week between those two. But really, the past uh, – what are we – Shane, what are we, three weeks now? How many weeks have we been doing this? Two weeks? A little over two weeks. Two, right? and a little over two weeks. So the shows we've been doing have been so successful. We've had so many great audience uh, – uh, not audience – of course, you're, you're great as an audience. We've had so many great guests, is what I meant to say, and so many great segments that I'm just getting my workflow down. I should, I'm going to talk more about workflow at some point on the show because it's the kind of thing that I think about. So anyway, I'm trying to get my workflow down to deal with putting segments up and everything else. This is a small operation. It's me and Shane. Right, Shane? Yeah. So far, it's me and Shane. And it's, some days, it's not even Shane. Shane just blew me off completely yesterday, so it was all me. But again, there's a reason, and hopefully in the new year, hopefully very soon, I'll be able to announce the reason we've been doing Radio Stranahan the past couple of weeks. Hopefully, we have a big announcement there. We are expanding So uh, the other big breaking news that's happening is Syria has declared that they have taken over all of Aleppo. They have evacuated the people who were supporting the terrorists in East Aleppo. That's That's what the evacuations were about, by the way. I don't know if you saw any footage of the evacuations. There were people with guns. And in fact, in one of the announcements, they said people will be allowed to take small arms with them. So you have to understand, the people in eastern Aleppo were supporting the terrorists. Got it? And I'll talk more about that in a few minutes. I'm going to talk more about Syria and give you more background on Syria. I've been talking about Syria a lot because it's a huge story. Syria is a huge story because... As I've been pointing out for three years now, I knew three years ago it was going to affect the refugee crisis was going to affect things. It was too great. It was too big. Not great in the sense of what an awesome refugee crisis, but like what a gigantic flipping refugee crisis. But I knew it was going to have a big impact, and the other thing I knew was going to have the impact 
is the spread of terrorism, the rise of al-Qaeda and ISIS. These groups like al-Nusra, who's one of the big groups in Syria, is an al-Qaeda affiliate. And I'll be talking more about that and making you smarter about Syria by playing you and then commenting on some stuff I said three years ago. But first, we before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about uh, journalism. And it's something I think about because I'm a journalist. I assume people do this in their professions as well. But uh, I'm kind of obsessed with trying to make journalism better. Make journalism great again. That's what my hat right now says. Not really, but it's radio, so picture that. And it's true. If you can imagine it, it's true. That's the way radio works. Uh, But it really is a passion of mine. And my friend and mentor, Andrew Breitbart, used to talk about putting CNN and the New York Times out of business. And as I've been rejiggering my life, I think that's the term, I spent – I've mentioned this before, but I spent eight months on the road this year from April – and even before that, I was on the road quite a bit. But basically from April – until uh, about two weeks before Thanksgiving, I was on the road almost nonstop. I think I was home with my wife and my kids about a week in there. Some of my kids went out and worked with me. Shane worked with me for a few months. My son Jack worked with me a little bit. But other than that, that was it. I would talk to my wife, would talk to the kids. We had little kids. We had kids who were four and six. They're not, they're not all giants like Shane. By the way, the four- and the six-year-old are not yet working on the show because they are crazy. But I spent eight months on the road on purpose trying to expose stuff that I thought would help win the election and covering big stories like the Orlando Pulse shooting, like the various protests against Trump like the Twin Falls refugee crisis. So I was on the road for eight months, and for a variety of reasons, including my health, which is why my doctor was on yesterday, I decided to get off the road and stay at home this winter and work on, in addition to my Breitbart writing, which is the main thing that I do, that's the most important thing that I do, writing and research for Breitbart News, as the lead investigative reporter. And I have more stuff coming on that, by the way. We have more stuff coming on Kellogg's and everything else just in the next few days. But I decided I'm going to re... I'm going to say jigger again. I'm going to rejigger my life. I'm moving things around. I'm going from a life that was living in hotels to living at home and trying to have a more regular schedule. And my health is part of that. Uh, But also I think it's a time to, my family's part of that. But I think the other part of that is just, I have a backlog of material. So that's part of the other reason that I'm taking next week off of Radio Stranahan is so I can take the deluge of material that I have from the past couple of weeks of doing the show develop some workflows 
and get that material out to you in a better form. It is 16 minutes past the hour, and you're listening to Radio Stranahan. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Call us. If you want to call into Radio Stranahan, the number is 619-924-0786. That number again, 619-924-0786. And let me just go to a brief, I'm going to go to, uh, because Christina's going to be joining us pretty soon, I think, here. Let's just go to a brief commercial announcement first, and then we'll get back to that. But uh, if Christina's not on, then I'll talk a little bit more about innovation and journalism, a topic I've been thinking quite a bit about. But here's a related advertisement for my own citizen journalism school, which is also a big project that I want to take the time to do. That's the other thing I'm going to do next week is start to get these courses out, including the free course that I mentioned here. Those will be coming to you next week by Monday. Let's call it by Monday at latest. Uh, That is my commitment. If not, I'll just give you my phone number. You can call and yell at me. But here's, here's the ad for Citizen Journalism School. Are you tired of the mainstream media and you want to make a difference? Do you read the newspapers or watch TV and think that you can do better? This is Lee Stranahan, and that's why I started Citizen Journalism School. You can check it out at citizenjournalismschool.com, and you'll see why I created a place where you can learn to research, write, promote the stories, make a difference, and make a living doing it. I'd like you to go over to citizenjournalismschool.com right now and sign up for a free course I've got for you. It's called Build Your Media Empire, and the course takes you step-by-step online through the things you need to do to set up the platforms so you can share your voice and your stories. I'll show you how to set up material so you can do writing, podcasting, video. Best of all, it's absolutely free. Go to citizenjournalismschool.com and sign up right now. You heard me. What are you waiting for? I should take a break sometime Let's, and just go, okay, I'm just going to wait until everybody signs up. By the way, if you sign up for that, you'll also be getting the Stranahan Report. You can opt out if you're not interested in the Stranahan Report and just stay on the Citizen Journalism School list, but you'll be getting that as well. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. I'm Lee Stranahan. By all first mention, uh, Lee Stranahan, cuddly, he's my friend. Yeah, he got thrown out of the club for reporting stories that were being suppressed. Radio Stranahan. That was Andrew Breitbart. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. And, oh, look, calling in now, as I thought she might be. Ladies and gentlemen, Christina Bateri. How are you doing, Christina? Hey, I am doing fine. I am in the midst of a Christmas miracle. <laughs> Which, sort of. Accurate. And what's your... And, and okay, so and what is the Christmas miracle, Christina? The, the Christmas miracle is I have found two of my neighbor's lost dogs. They have two dogs. Oh, really? I found them both. And I'm waiting. I'm, I'm actually outside. We're doing uh, on scene reporting right now. Side. It's exciting. After chasing one down, <laughs> waiting for. And so the, the exciting. Owner. The exciting part here is you're going to make extra Christmas money by holding the dogs 
hostage, correct? Is that the idea? <laughs> you found the dogs, and now there's going to be some sort of reward waiting for you. Or I, I believe my reward will just be will be uh, gratitude. So, anyways, uh, I am I am quite happy to uh, to uh, help make uh, my neighbor's Christmas happier because they have little kids. So there you go, and and you are a yeah. little kid. So I am a little kid. the biggest little kid you ever met. I now, I, by the way, I mentioned. I mentioned your I mentioned I gave some of your C V, some of your resume a little bit before. Uh-huh. One of the founders of the Tea Party, one of the main organizers behind the Foundation Tea Party. And I also mentioned you're a frequent guest on the David Webb show. In fact a uh-huh. a regular guest. Now by the way, when you're a guest let me just ask this. When you're a guest with Webb, are there dogs barking in the background? Or do you <laughs> take a more professional no. approach with David? More I, I did say it's on the street reporting. This, this is the, the uh, lovely dulcet tones you hear now are my dog, an old English sheepdog, who is very vocal and excited about these other two new very best friends that they have met. Yeah, this is <laughs> this is fascinating radio, Christina. I oh, tell I know. You, my gotta, goodness. You've got a sense of what people are interested in. That's, that's, no one, no one can deny your marketing acumen. Yes. Well, you know, it's one of those things where uh, in the, in the magic of timing, um, this is just kind of what happened right now. And so, uh, I hope you'll have me back. (laughs) No, of course I will. I, of course I will because I love you. And here's the thing. Uh, as I pointed out, when you do the David Webb show on Sirius XM Satellite yes. Radio 125, yes. the Patriot Channel, which I don't mind promoting. I'll promote Sirius XM all day since I'm often on it. Um, yes. Uh, and I love and, – and Dave is a friend. And I love David. And uh, Yes. Uh, when you go on that show, I know for a fact – I'm giving away a secret here, but this may be a secret. You actually prep. You actually do show prep. Oh yeah, a little bit to make sure to make sure you're set. And here, show prep consisted of dogs, basically. But yes. but Christina had contacted her. She's like, "Well, what should what are we going to talk about?" And I said, "Ah, stuff. Don't worry about it." So I was trying to make it easy on you, so you wouldn't have to worry that you'd have to prepare anything. Yeah, so why would I possibly worry about preparing for talking about anything on earth? <laughs> well, let me let me tell you what I want. Let me tell you what I wanted to talk about because I I I wanted to make it easier for you to to just uh, be on the show. But what I wanted to mm-hmm. talk about was the Tea Party, which you know quite a bit about, and yeah. how the Tea Party fits in in this post Donald Trump world. Uh, yeah. I'm I'm very curious about that. And so let's just get into that a little bit because again, I want to say you were. One of the organizers, another uh, guest we've had on the show, Michael Patrick Leahy, was also around at the yes. formation of the Tea Party. And so when love I say Mike. that, when I say you were around at the beginning, yeah, no, I love Mike too. Mike's, Mike's awesome. And um, and by the way, when he was on the show, there were no dogs, zero <laughs> dogs. But So what you're saying is that, I'm so, upping the content. <laughs> you are. That's right. You're, you're, bringing, you're bringing something extra. So, 
so Christina, when when we say you were one of the organizers of the Tea Party, what does that mean? Be be specific and well, and brag. what a lot of people, yeah, what <laughs> what a lot of people um, who are a little bit unfamiliar with the Tea Party and the formation of the Tea Party don't know is that many of the original organizers were already um, talking and building relationships through the uh, TCOT hashtag. And we had the TCOT Action Projects where we get on conference calls and talk with one another, a few dozen of us. And uh, Mike organized those calls, organized the TCOT hashtag, which if you're on Twitter, um, TCOT is a, uh, is, a, is a very, very famous uh, hashtag. It's been trending for years that stands for Top Conservatives on Twitter, which is an idea that actually was uh, introduced by Bulick Garrett, who's a, a – Gosh, I don't know how old she was is now. She was 70 uh, back then, and um, it stands for Top Conservatives on Twitter, which is a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek uh, way for us to find each other. And so this was – I'm talking about August of 2008, uh, 2009, when, when all that was going on. And that's when we were, you know, naive uh, little pups calling pups calling uh, our Congress people, expecting them to listen to our grievances. And we were very successful at shutting down switchboards, but we very quickly learned that well, we need to be smarter. And uh, and then round about uh, February, mid February, Rick Santelli had that rant on the floor of the Chicago uh, Mercantile Exchange, and it was it really was a galvaning galvanizing event. It was a moment where immediately we were tweeting one another and texting one another going, holy smokes, did you see that? He's on to think this is a great idea. Let's have a conference call, which Mike organized for that night or the following night. And so – And, well, and just call, for people for – for, for people who might not remember, what was Rick Santelli's rant? Because some people might not. I know what you're talking about. Right. But. Yes. Well, okay, good point. He was um, – objecting to the moral hazard of of bank bailouts and specifically mortgage bailouts when um, banks make bad loans. And uh, over time, new instruments were created uh, because of other relax, uh, deregulations and regulations um, that developed into the derivatives market, which ballooned the real estate market and when it busted because of an over leverage of bad loans mixed in with the good loans, everything became toxic. People, you know, trillions of dollars went to money heaven. And the government that and it was first introduced by George Bush, which we objected to, um, said, we're going to bail out the banks. We're going to have a, um, a, the TARP uh, program and uh, Troubled Asset Relief Program. And we're going to print all this money and bail these people out because otherwise the economy will end and America will cease to be. And we objected to that vehemently. We thought that, well, if you made you mix your choices in a free market and we need to have the freedom to fail. And even if these um, instruments do fail, it's not going to be as bad as all of that. And we lost that argument. And uh, and so uh, what well, Rick Santelli uh, was doing was saying, should you should people be forced to pay for their 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 neighbor's mortgage that they can't afford, but they knew they couldn't afford when they took the mortgage? 
Well, and, and I wanted to bring out some of this history for a couple reasons. Number one, a TV host from – she hosts – she's a co-host on – I believe it's an ABC show, but Aisha Taylor. Uh, she did a tweet the other day, just recently, about how she remembered the racist Tea Party forming and talking about assassinating Barack Obama. Did you see this? Did you see this at all? The report, I have not seen the report, but I've never seen any kind of racist uh, behavior. The only kind of racist behavior, if you could even call it that, were actually um, hoaxers and trolls invading Tea Party events, and they were immediately confronted by the rally goers and kicked out and said, there's no place for you here. You have to stop that right now. We don't like that. We're not, we don't agree with uh, these things. Well, so this celebrity, Aisha Taylor, did a a tweet about how uh, she remembers the Tea Party talking about assassinating Obama and being racist. And I I wanted to go over some of this history because this is one of those stories that the media just got completely wrong almost from the get-go, which was – and I'm going to reiterate something you just said. The Tea Party – objected to George Bush's bank bailout, correct? Yes, that's right. That's right. Very much so. Very much so. so we, were, the, we were extraordinarily so, disappointed with George Bush. The end, of his, uh, the end of his second term was a spending spree, and we were basically yelling our heads off, uh, but we weren't doing it right. <laughs> and so nobody really heard us. Um, well, we shut down some switchboards, well, but that was pretty much it. So the obvious question there is why were you racist against George Bush? That's the obvious question, which is <laughs> well, – Well, and the obvious is he, answer is we weren't. We, we okay, were never about go. race. Yeah. And, and, but, but, you, but you heard those accusations almost immediately, right? When, when the Tea Party started oh, yeah. to get known, the racism thing came up. And we just played right before you came on. I played the little bumper I used of Andrew Breitbart. And Andrew, this is before I knew Andrew, but Andrew was a huge advocate of the Tea Party and a huge yes. defender. And particularly, I talked about Glenn Beck and the whole Shirley Sherrod thing the other day a little bit. And yes. the reason Andrew got into that fight was because the NAACP, Ben Jealous of the NAACP, was accusing yes. the Tea Party of being racist. Now, I yes. just, one of the reasons I want to point this out, too, is that I want to point out that these dummies on the left don't have any new ammunition. This racism thing is literally, it's just, it's like the only card in their deck. It's the only card. And they said it about the Tea Party. And now what they're doing is they're like, okay, well, the, you know, the, the, the Trump supporters, they're much worse than the Tea Party. But they forget that they were calling you guys horrible things when you started correct so the oh yeah the worst the, the, well and, and in fact and the you know thing, there were there, there were let's remember in uh, the early tea party days when we were having the rallies and stuff and uh uh the tea party was blamed for um vandalism and you know really dangerous bad bad stuff and it was all proven to be hoaxes uh one one actually that sounds was that, yeah that yeah. sounds slightly familiar, Christine. I'm not sure yeah. if I've heard anything like that before. Yeah. 
yeah, it's a tried and true playbook. And so um, Vangelis and the NAACP actually spent many millions of dollars developing a website. Should I say the name of the website? Which is just a giant slander. It's called Tea Party Nationalism. And it was a website that they they probably spent three to five million dollars on, um, and it is uh, it is a carefully crafted uh, gossamer thin uh, you know a veil of lies about what what an awful thing the Tea Party is. And whenever we tried to confront him directly with David, by the way, um, in the new, with the newly formed. Uh, National Tea Party Federation, uh, they ran away. And uh, so they won't confront us directly with evidence. I, in fact, called um, Representative Cleaver, who, uh, for, for all the Tea Party history geeks out there, he was one of the congressmen who claimed to be spit on by the Tea Party people during the, uh, the uh, health care passage, the big giant rally with 30,000 people. That was there, and his communications director. You know, I basically said, "Hey, we really don't like this story. We really want to find out who did it. Help us." I saw that uh, there were some videotaping. Can you share the tape so we can find out who did this? Because we gotta, we gotta call these guys out. We don't like that. We think it's the ter- most terrible thing in the world. Please help us. And she basically blew me off, dropped the N word on me, and. Uh, and just would not help at all and basically said that I'm a terrible person because I'm a white Tea Party person. Yeah, I mean, again, I think this is very important history to talk about in in context of what's going on right now. It's 34 minutes past the hour. We're talking to Christina Boteri. She's one of the organizers of the original Tea Party, and we're talking about how the more things change, the more they stay the same. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. More with Christina Boteri in just one second. Shining the light of truth. Oops. One sec. Let's try that again, shall we? It was so good. It started. It was so. It was so exciting there for a second. Shining the light of truth on liberal America. Hey, that's a bright light. Radio Stranahan. You're listening, to Radio Stranahan. This is Lee Stranahan. The number again, if you want to call in, six one nine nine two four. Okay, I'm on. I'm on the phone. I can't get off. It's okay. 619-924-0786. The number if you want to call in, 619-924-0786. And we actually do have a caller on. So I, I muted Christina briefly while she was dealing with dogs and they were barking. But let's uh, okay. let's bring in the caller. Uh, 602 area code. What can we do for you today? You're on Radio Stranahan. Area code 602. Is that me? That's you. That's me. Lee, um, I have enjoyed listening to you so much on Twitter. I really appreciate what you do. And I'm wondering, how much time do you spend? Is this a lifelong passion of yours to research the information that you get? And what sources do you go to? Are you involved with sources in the Middle East that you're able what I mean by that is one has to be careful, I think, somewhat in what information you access. Well, it's a, it's Do a you great have question. any fear? So let me, yeah, it's a great question. So I'll take the Middle East part second. As far as okay. how much time I spend researching this, 
Christina will tell you <laughs> that when she and I talk, which we talk once every couple of weeks or something like that, it's it's in very it's always about politics. I mean, we'll spend thirty seconds on, hey, how's your husband? How's your wife? Boom. Then it's it's all politics. So I mean, yeah, this is uh, it's an obsession uh, for me, and uh, I'm lucky enough to have my obsession be a, a job right. I make money. Uh, th- so that, so I'm, I'm really blessed in that sense. Uh, I, I research everything. So the, the, wh- where I get my information is I, I, I go to wherever I can find it, which means the principle here is I never dismiss a source just for being a source. So I'll read the New York Times, I'll read the Washington Post, but I'll read you know right wing sites as well. I'll read Russian sites, I'll read Syrian sites, I'll read uh, Saudi Arabian sites, right? I'll I'll listen to Al Jazeera, and it's really only by sort of getting a, a lot of data from different sources that you can start to piece together who's telling the truth in this area and. And where people are kind of weaseling, and you can you can tell, you you get this sense afterwards. Uh, on the Middle East, in particular, but this goes, so this takes the Middle East thing. I'll take two, uh-huh. two two different two different questions there. One of them is what where, where are my sources for that? The other thing I found is I found you can't, which is why I spend so much time on the road, as I mentioned earlier. I found you can't really figure out a story unless you go and cover the story. So, Christina, we've been talking about the Tea Party, and we'll keep talking about that in just a minute. But when I was writing for the Huffington Post, uh, I everybody on the left was writing about the Tea Party and how awful they were. So I went to a local Tea Party event in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I was living at the time. And it was different than I was told. I was told it was AstroTurf, it was all fake. But I went there, and I talked to people, and I videotaped them, and I thought they would say stupid things. And that was because that's what I was told. I was told they're a bunch of idiots, and it's all AstroTurf. And when I interviewed people, they didn't say stupid things at all. They said smart things. They were clearly well-informed. And that's the story I wrote. The story I wrote at the Huffington Post was my expectations were somewhat confounded by – and I started to get that it was like, some libertarians and some conservatives and there was some, you know, there was this interesting mix of people who were part of the tea party, but I wouldn't have found that out if I hadn't gone to a rally. Does that make sense? The easiest thing in the world is, is to sit at home and write about it. So when I was covering the events in Malula, Syria, back in August of 2013, I was trying to figure out what was going on. And that's when I had, uh, uh, I'll use the term called. That's the way I felt. The idea came into my head all at once. You need to go to Lebanon. You need to go to Beirut. Because I knew that's where refugees were going. And I wanted to interview the Christian refugees. Because I wanted to interview people and get the story straight from them. So that's that's how I learned a lot. So I went over to Beirut for 10 days. I, I didn't stay in a hotel. I stayed in an apartment with somebody. And I did that on purpose because I wasn't going over as a tourist. Does that make sense? Like I wanted to. Yeah. You wanted to, to live the life. Pe- 
I'm right, and I wanted to talk to people, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and I, 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 and I really understood more how things, what daily life is like in Beirut, and it was different than I thought it would be. And uh, I ended up interviewing major religious figures, the head of the uh, Catholic Church, effectively. It's really Orthodox, but affect, call it Catholic, in um, in in Iraq, I interviewed Louis Sacco, who's the Patriarch of Babylon, the head of the entire, basically the Pope of the Orthodox Church in, in Iraq, people like that. But I also interviewed refugees who were Christian, who were over there. I interviewed Muslim refugees. And, and I'll be playing some of that later in the show probably, but everything I learned about Syria, I learned from really nothing much is uh, – it, it's sad – but nothing much has changed. The players are the same players now, right? And the situation is kind of the same situation. And so, uh, but you have to you have to sometimes go places to learn stuff. But you have to go with an open mind, uh, without an agenda. You 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 can't go in with a completely open mind. You can't go in like, well, I don't know what's I, I don't have, you know, because you have opinions. Everybody has opinions. I thought I knew what was going on. But when when things don't match your your expectations, you have to be open to the new information. I hope that's clear. Like, like you, you now can't go both, in. For both you mind. and yeah. Christina, do you, do you worry about um, – Government pressure on what you do? Have so I'll, either I'll one of you? I think Christina has muted her phone for the dog because she's she's still on. But uh, I'll, I I'll, I'll answer for me. I, yeah, I, 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 for me, I can't worry about that. I can't worry about any any of that kind of thing. I, I, uh, I, I do what I do, and if something happens. I'll deal with it then, but I can't worry about, I can't be afraid and let that keep me from doing something. Does that make sense? Like, I just literally can't. I just go, well, that can't be a consideration. I have to tell a story. And I've been to places, uh, South Dakota is an example. South Dakota is the most corrupt. I'll tell this real briefly because I want to hear Christina's answer too. South Dakota, for instance, is the most corrupt state in the country. And it's run by Republicans. And I could talk a lot more about that. But basically, it's a very corrupt state because it's a small state population-wise. And the government does go after people. But you can't let that rule your life. You just have to – if you're going to be a reporter, if you're going to be a journalist, you have to let the chips fall where they may, and you do what they do. That being said, I don't do stupid stuff. Like when I went to Beirut, I didn't go into Syria because that was dangerous. I went into Beirut, which was safer. And I only I, – I stayed in the, in the Christian area of Beirut. I didn't go down to the Muslim-controlled area uh, because there's infighting among uh, Hamas and those groups there. So I didn't have anything to mm-hmm. do with the, the, that, that section. So you try to be smart, but you can't be, be you can't be afraid. So Chris, I'm I'm curious how how have you dealt with that? How have you dealt with fear and? 
Well, while many of my of my friends and acquaintances in Tea Party land have actively been targeted by uh, weaponized IRS and other government agencies, um, I have not. And um, and and I and, and really, you know, Lee's advice is is right. You want to you can't let uh, the fear of targeting um, make decisions for you, but you don't you don't do silly stuff either. And so right. I am the person who, um, you know, the uh, famous last word. You, you could read every single email I've ever sent. You could read every single message, every single chat, every single text um, that I've ever sent, every phone call I've ever made, and uh, I would be fine if my mother and grandmother were sitting there reading and listening to it all. And that's just the, the who I am. And so if I'm going to go after somebody or something, um, it's always, uh, you know, clean hits. Basically, you know, I'm hitting you four square where you deserve it. Um, I don't take cheap shots. And so, uh, and I don't get personal. And, um, and so that is uh, the rule that I use that I live by every single day. And it, uh, it's a great way to be because it, um, People will take you seriously when you call on them, um, including your, you know, perhaps your adversaries that you need to deal with from time to time. And, um, you know, being unflappable is another good uh, rule. And uh, because if you if you are talking to somebody who is not your friend, who who is trying to hurt you, and you fly off the handle and react. Uh, unfavorably to something that they say now they know that they can that they can successfully target you and and upset you and that um has never been something that works with me and so the the people who do wish to target me or confront me or otherwise you know stop what I'm doing know that they have a very very tough task on their hands because you know I I I'm just really t- you know that just is um because of these rules that I live by it's not something that can really be done well, that's great I, that uh, thanks very much the, yeah that, that that's that's great chris uh thank, thanks very much for the call i appreciate the caller calling in and we like it when you call in so i'll play the call in thing again in a second it's 47 minutes past the hour you're listening to radio stranahan i'm lee stranahan no false modesty, please, Lee. Forget the Pulitzers. You know, you should be getting a, a, a global prize for what you've been doing because it, it's really something that nobody else has done and, and you're really leading the way. Radio Stranahan. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Call us. 619-924-0786. That number again, 619 0786. That was a very nice call, wasn't it, Christina? Good, good, good questions there. Oh yeah, really good questions and uh, very informative. Yeah, I remember it, talking it warms... with you just as you were heading out to Beirut, in fact, and uh, I was a little concerned. You remember that? I'm like, hey man, I love you. Be careful, okay? And you're like, yeah, yeah okay, I will. <laughs> yeah, well, because I, 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 for whatever reason, uh. You know, I became a Christian a, a couple of years ago. So, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I, I don't like to, I don't like to wear, to wear it on my sleeve that much for a variety of reasons. But 
Uh, and I and I don't I don't like to tell people what they should believe, basically, because I came to Christ very late in my life. But the idea to go to Beirut really did come like wholly formed instantly, and even mm-hmm. even knowing where to go. So I don't care if you if you or anybody believes me, but I'm telling you what happened. Like I don't care if you're like, well, that sounds weird. I don't care. But I'm not lying. This is what happened. The idea came instantly into my head, wholly formed, including I knew which section of Beirut, and I didn't know anything about Beirut, I had to go to. I was like, I mm-hmm. need to go to the Christian section of Beirut. And when I looked it up, sure enough, there was a Christian section of Beirut. And uh, so I wasn't afraid at all. And, and uh, every, a lot of people were nervous because you weren't supposed to go there. There was, there was people don't remember we were on the verge of war. Barack yeah. Obama had had drawn this red line. If Bashar al-Assad uses chemical weapons, well, we're we're going to war. And he was ready to launch missiles into Syria, which is when I was in Beirut, someone said, "Well, you might want to go over to Damascus, Syria." And I said, "Well, how would I get there?" And they said, "Take a cab." So that's how close it was. So it's not close, close, but it's pretty close. It's like, you know, it was, I'll put it like this. When I lived in Dallas, it was closer than Fort Worth, right? Mm-hmm. So there mm-hmm. you go. And, um, and so, you know, Syria was closer than Fort Worth was to me when I lived in Dallas. And so I wasn't afraid at all. But, yeah, I mean, the, the weird situations, the reason I brought up South Dakota or other the, the scariest protest I've ever been in was the drunk union guys protesting right to work in Lansing, Michigan, um, mm-hmm. who were who were drunk, who were beer drunk at nine in the morning. Oh, Lord. Because they were tailgating, basically. They were they were pregaming, mm-hmm. getting ready because it was a it was a done deal. Michigan had passed right to work. Snyder, the the governor, it was a done deal, right? And so the only purpose, they were not protesting to try to change someone's mind. They were protesting to stamp their big, giant, union-thugged feet. And that's where they took down the tent with old women in it and stuff like that. That's what they, that's what they did that. But you could tell at 8 in the morning, these guys were, like, ready to go. Does that make sense? So that's – so, you know – that's the scariest thing I've ever heard. That was scarier than Beirut. It was scarier than any Black Lives Matter protest I've been to. Because um, these guys just wanted to hit something. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's what they wanted to do. But um, now the other point I want to emphasize, we're talking about the history of the Tea Party. We're talking to Christina Bateri. She's one of the organizers of the Tea Party. She's also a frequent guest on my friend David Webb's show on Sirius XM Satellite Radio 125 at Patriot Channel. And then, is this your? Are you going to be on tonight, Christina? I am. There you go. Because yes. Thursday is Christina Day. Yes, absolutely. correct. I mean, that's the way. <laughs> that's the way it goes. So Thursday is Christina Day on David Webb Show. So if you can't get enough of Christina Pateri, feel free to tune in tonight to Sirius Satellite Radio, and then you'll have enough. At that point, you'll be like, "Yeah, I've had enough. That's plenty, of Christina, for one day." Until next I've had week. Two, Two radio hits, yeah. Then you, then you'll be then you'll be stuck. But um, I wanted to talk about the other aspect of the Tea Party in the uh, time we have left, which is the anti. We 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 hit on it a little bit, 
but the Tea Party was anti-Republican establishment. And this is the oh, yeah. thing that has also, also been lost in history, is how anti-Republican establishment they were. Now, given that, do you see the Trump presidency as a huge betrayal of Tea Party values and everything else? No. <laughs> of course not. Right. Um, uh, right. Ba- basically, here, here's the deal. Okay, anti-Republican. That's right. But if we if we zoom out uh, even even more, um, the big you know the really big secret, apart from we were already talking to each other before Rick Santelli's rant, the really big secret of the Tea Party that everybody should keep in mind is that um, the Tea Party truly an anti-corruption movement, and and it's because of our staunch opposition to corruption, including crony capitalism, which isn't capitalism, including you know self-dealing, including all of these corrupt behaviors that we have seen grow and grow over the decades in our political system, that was the impetus for the Tea Party movement. It reached a tipping point at the end of George Bush's um, presidency. It continued and built forward on Barack Obama's presidency and um and in the in that intervening eight years we went from not existing to capturing a majority in the house in 2010 capturing a majority in the senate in 2014 and capturing the presidency the white house in 2016 and that is frankly remarkable you know he intimated into the the hand of providence I think that's, uh, you know, a lot of inspiration has happened across millions of people in America. And Donald Trump's policies are at their core Tea Party policies because they're economically proactive and they seek to limit the, the bureaucracy in Washington through regulation and other department, you know, shrinkages. And the fact that, uh, that Steve Bannon – whom I consider a friend and certainly a tremendous ally um, in in Tea Party terms, uh, is there in the White House, and he has been a fantastic uh, representative of of our ideas and um, and and policy proposals and and so on. And so the you know the, the truth of the matter is Donald Trump is the Tea Party president, and it's going to be fantastic for America because of that pro-growth stance. We can do anything here. We are a nation of superheroes. All we have to do is decide, and I think that America has made that decision to be great. And, and I, I, one of the reasons I bring it up is because it was so irritating to me personally as a friend of Andrew Breitbart's to hear people, especially the whiners, the anti-Trump whiners, uh, and people who were friends of mine at one point, people like Ben Howe, or Ben Shapiro, uh, not w- just whining. They need to put on their big boy pants. By the way, uh, breaking news, Ben Shapiro literally does not own big boy pants, but that's a matter of his height. But I digress. <laughs> the point is, but the point here is, for to hear people who supposedly, you know, they, Ben was a friend of Andrew's. No question about it. Absolutely was a friend of Andrew's. But for him to talk about the betrayal of Andrew Breitbart and that somehow supporting Donald Trump was a betrayal of Andrew Breitbart's values is completely, totally wrong. Andrew Breitbart 
the first conversation we had, he told me he hated the Republican establishment. And I think even a guy like Ted Cruz, and and I'm going to veer off here on the Cruz for a second, and free back. Ted Cruz is a guy who launched his campaign for Senate by doing a Tea Party press conference. Correct? You remember that, right? He did a, a oh a, yeah, like a Tea Party phone call. However, I think people need to realize that the Tea Party, and tell me how you feel about this. In my way of thinking, it got co-opted by the establishment Republicans as much as it could be. I like Cruz. It was about um, checklists the most and the standard conservative issues, including social issues. Right? Was in, and, and to say a big Planned Parenthood fan or anything like that, I, I think, you know, I think we talk, talked about it. I think you're pro-life, but I we don't even know. Um, I assume you are, but I don't even know. But the point was with the Tea Party, it was like you say, corruption. And that's exactly what Andrew believed. And that's exactly what Trump was running on. And as you mentioned, was part of the Tea Party. So a guy like Cruz, I think, ended up being... He eventually counted after Bannon came in. By the way, people should note that. Cruz did not endorse Trump until Steve Bannon came in. And if you, don't, if you think Donald Trump and Steve Bannon don't know how to negotiate, you don't know anything about their background. So that was a negotiation to get Cruz back on board. But mm-hmm. I, think there was, I think there was something co-opted about Trump. I mean, forgive me, about Cruz, that I think some of the people who were supporting him just didn't see. Do, do you agree with me on that assessment? Or absolutely. Well, look, there is, there is the perception of a candidate and the reality of a candidate, and sometimes um, those can be different things. And uh, I had issues with with Ted Cruz, and and issues for for good reason, um, having to do with policy, specifically his early support of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which he denies. However, his voting record uh, exposes that to be not exactly accurate. And so he, uh, just his his path on that issue was 100% wrong. Then when you look at his resume, which is incredibly, incredibly impressive, incredibly impressive resume Ted Cruz has, you realize very quickly this guy is a hundred percent Bush guy. You couldn't get more, <laughs> you know, more entrenched yeah. in the Republican Party than Ted Cruz's resume. And when you put it together with his behaviors, apart from his rhetoric, his behaviors, the actions don't lightly. Somebody can talk to your office and say anything, but you got to look at what they do. And so when you look at Ted Cruz's actions, it gave me serious pause. In the meantime, his rhetoric attracted quite a bit of Tea Party support, uh, due in large part by the endorsement of the incredible people in the Tea Party movement inside of Texas um, and, and the, that regional footprint there, which is vast and, and impressive and huge and effective and tremendous. And he was uh, dragged across the line <laughs> into the Senate in 2014 by these magnificent people, and uh, and then shortly thereafter, Ted Cruz mounted his presidential campaign. And so behind the scenes, he was getting good advice from his grassroots supporters. He was getting good advice that he that he chose not to follow, 
and they warned him, don't do this, don't do, and he did it anyway. And then when it all blew up, um, they, you know, he said, oh, well, his advisors were not giving him good advice. And that's just, that, I'm sorry, but that just is um, a big, big, big red flag. Now, the truth of the matter is, is that the support for um, Donald Trump, and I just mean, you know, we had a huge field of candidates, and we can talk about that sometime. It's really interesting. But basically, Tea Party uh, wound up in two big camps, the Donald Trump camp and the Ted Cruz camp. By far and away, the Ted Cruz camp was vocal and effective in, um, in their voicing of their support in Ted Cruz. However, I believe the split was more like a 60-40 kind of split, much more of the, uh, of the Tea Party um, people, especially organizers and leaders who started out on that economic uh, freedom standpoint. You know, the original Tea Party people sided with Donald Trump because they saw what he was saying from a policy standpoint was dead on accurate, whereas Ted Cruz chose to run his campaign on social issues. Now, the Tea Party movement was founded on economic principles and, uh, you know, constitutional fidelity, free markets, and fiscal responsibility. And so we purposely eschewed social issues because that's an argument. And, uh, and yes, you know, I am pro-life, but all the pro-life social programs in the whole wide world don't mean a thing if you have no economy. And so, um, and so or many – or, or, or if you can't get elected, which is the other point, too. If you can't get elected – sure. That doesn't yeah. help you either. Hang on, one, Chris. I want to hold you over uh, past the break. It's one minute past the hour. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. And bringing the truth to all 50 states. Yeah, even Massachusetts. Radio Stranahan. We're just past the top of the hour. This is Lee Stranahan. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. We're talking to Christina Bateri. She is one of the founders and organizers of the Tea Party. And we're, we're unburying the truth about the Tea Party that the mainstream media has done a good job of burying. And unfortunately, I would say some Republicans have done a good job of burying, too. Uh, you know, a guy like uh, – and we were just talking about Ted Cruz. And c- continue the point you're making, then I'd, then I'd like to make fun of Glenn Beck for a moment. But, but just continue the point you're making about Ted Cruz before I launch into Glenn Beck. <laughs> okay. Um, and so, uh, you know, many of the original organizers actually joined uh, Donald Trump's campaign as field directors, as, you know, state coordinators, as event planners, and, and did amazing things below the radar, amazing things that delivered the win in Pennsylvania, delivered the win in North Carolina, delivered the win in Ohio, especially Ohio, of course, the Tea Party for Trump program in Ohio that I was involved with and Tom Zostowski and other other amazing people um, did spectacularly well in Ohio who, uh, you know, delivered the win in South Carolina um, and so, and in Michigan and other places. So it's, it was a very serious group of people who know how to organize, who know how to win and who did, who used ideas and innovations that, haven't quite been figured out yet. We know what it is. <laughs> Nobody else does quite yet, and that's just fine. 
And so, um, you know, when we talk about the future, you know, that's what's really exciting as we pivot from a loyal opposition to a more leadership role to help make America great again. Well, and and the reason – so let me – now let me go after Glenn Beck because if Cruz was a little bit of a disappointment, which I think he was, who, you know, again, he got on board eventually. And you talked about Ted Cruz and his resume. Let's just be blunt. Ted Cruz is a very, very smart guy. No question whatsoever. He's a brill. He's brilliant. Ted Cruz uh, is probably one of the smartest people in politics when it could just comes to raw IQ power. Uh, you know, Harvard, Harvard educated, so on and so forth. You know, guy, great memory. Yeah. I've seen Ted he's Cruz. I've met, met Ted Cruz. He's got great. Yeah, he's, smart. He, he, I don't know about the does. emotional intelligence, but he's got he's got amazing. Uh, you know, uh, in, intellect with regards to data. It's really quite he's got he, He's got the same problem a lot of people who are as smart as he is has, mm-hmm. which is um, he's so smart that he – and he knows it. That's the let, Let's just be blunt. He knows it. I mean, this is a guy mm-hmm. who – there's the video of him when he was 18 or 19 mm-hmm. was – planning to be president okay and mm-hmm. when you're 18 or 19 and you're planning to be president you and you're serious you're like i'm going to be president you don't you do certain things and you don't do certain things and most people and i'm talking about donald trump here donald trump really never thought he'd be president when he was in his 30s and 40s he thought he might you know he he said it but I don't think he ever thought the country would get so bad as it did under Obama, where he would be forced to run. And therefore, when he's looking at what he's going to say on the Howard Stern show or dating ladies or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. He wasn't think he wasn't planning a career in politics, which means most people aren't. They don't have that pure resume that a lot of politicians do which is cultivated they cultivate that image Mm -hmm. and if they're doing Mm -hmm. anything naughty they really make sure to hide it right Mm -hmm. a guy like Mm -hmm. a guy like donald trump it's easy to figure out the naughty stuff he was doing because he just talks about it he's just oh yeah i was Mm -hmm. doing this or that because he wasn't does this make sense in other words I, i i i think people like to talk about the ideal of a citizen politician. Well, we don't want a career politician. We don't want a career politician. But then when it comes down to it, a lot of the criticisms of Trump were, gee, this guy didn't live his life like a career politician. You know, where's his coherent position? (laughs) Exactly. Right? So, you know, there's a bit of dissonance there, isn't it? Isn't there? And so, you know, and and, and by the way, when you're talking, when you're 18 or 19 years old and you say, I'm going to be president and you're, and you're, you know, working toward that end, I don't know that that has so much to do with intellect as it does with ambition. And so, um, and and that's, that's a wholly different thing. I mean, Einstein said, you know, if you uh, judge a fish by how well well it climbs a tree, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Well, Ted Cruz is one of the finest fish that swim in the sea, but um, he has a little trouble climbing trees. And that's the difference between his. Well, and I I wasn't remarking about his intelligence. Here's the point I'm making. Like, so when I was 19, uh, I had a a friend, a close friend of mine. You just live your life. Wanted, 
but but I had a close friend who wanted to go into government service. And so mm-hmm. if if the other 19-year-olds were going to go smoke weed behind the convenience store, he was like, not, I'm not going to do that. And we were like, well, why? He's like, because I want to go into government service, and they're going to ask me, did you ever use drugs? And I want to be able to answer honestly, no, I did not. And we were all like, okay, whatever, dude. And like, like because we weren't planning a career in politics, but he was. And by the way, he mm-hmm. not career in politics, but government service. He went into government mm-hmm. service. He's been very successful in government service and uh, military related stuff. And that's great. But what I'm saying is I have that experience of seeing people who were living their life like that. And I certainly mm-hmm. wasn't one of them. I just wasn't. You, Christina knows me well. I yeah. wasn't mm-hmm. one of them. And uh, <laughs> uh, um, I, I did some living. And, uh, mm-hmm. You'll, ne- you'll and, never be a and, SEAL team member, Lee. I hate to break it. Never be a SEAL team member. <laughs> no, no. Uh, but, but, but that wasn't my goal, and that wasn't right. my – I wasn't trying, to, trying to do that. And by the way, that, that wasn't Donald Trump's goal. For a long no. time, and so a, a lot of these criticisms that I see lodged against him during the campaign were along the mm-hmm. lines of, "Well, how can you trust the guy because he's been because he's lived like I, I don't know how else to put it like a a more normal life mm-hmm. than a guy who's trying to check things off in a box." The other thing I don't think people realize is that I think that it defined Ted Cruz's positions because he knew. Mm-hmm. A guy like Trump, flip flip flop. Let, let me. I'll, I'll take a simple issue: gay marriage, same sex marriage. Okay. Human beings in the United States changed their opinion on same sex marriage in the last twenty years. This is not a conjecture. This is a fact. If you look at polling data, it used to be no, nobody was in favor of it. And now a majority of people are in favor of it. That means that a lot of people change their mind about it, right? I'm, just, I'm mm-hmm. not saying right or wrong, but that's what in fact happened. People changed their mind about that issue. So, uh, and we know Barack Obama changed his mind about it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like as we did, know as that. As did Hillary Clinton. As, as did, did Hillary Joe Clinton, Biden, as, by the way. They all did. And as mm-hmm. did a lot, a lot of Democrats. Now, so, but. If you're a Republican, you are supposed to be – what you were told because Republican establishment had dug in on that issue, you were supposed to be against same-sex marriage. The problem is there that if that's just a check-off-the-box thing and you're just like, okay, I, I'm not – and again, I'm not saying I'm – I'm, right now I'm not taking a position on the issue one way or the other. But the fact is a lot of people's opinion changed. Now, when you're not a politician, you never get accused of flip-flopping, right? You, mm-hmm. You're just like, oh, hey, we, hey, we talked about this 10 years ago, and you were like, gay marriage, that sounds weird. I've never heard of such a thing. And now you're like, I don't really care if two dudes get married. I don't – okay. But, but, but people don't go, oh, you flip-flopped. It's just like, I don't know, you thought about it, and then you were like – you changed your opinion. Or maybe you thought about it, and you're like, I don't care if two dudes get married, but you know what? They shouldn't be able to sue a bakery for a million dollars if they don't get a cake. Maybe yeah. you get a free a free cake. Maybe not even that, right? But you don't get a million dollars because you didn't get a cake. That's bogus. But I, I don't well, care if maybe, two dudes maybe get married. Well, maybe you just go to another bakery. 
But yeah, and you and, and, I mean, but you see what I'm saying, change. right? Like, yeah, things yeah. change. Also, you know, developments change. I mean, you know, in other issues, um, science, you know, in using the scientific method, things change. Using observation, you know, you form a hypothesis. Hypothesis, you observe, you you know, make notes, you study, you compare, you know, and and by using these critical thinking tools, people evolve. And that's just the nature of the world. And uh, sometimes the evolution is um, is very, very small. You know, well, I know I, I'm, I'm pretty much sticking to my guns on it, but, you know, I see where you're coming from kind of a thing. Versus, boy, I have just really come around on, you know, Brussels sprouts. Brussels sprouts are actually quite nice <laughs> as, a, as a silly example. And so, um, and so uh, yeah, you know, on the one hand, I, I, there's something really interesting that you mentioned, though. You know, you talk about Republican orthodoxy, and I think that there is is a um, an interesting duality. There's an interesting second part to that equation of orthodoxy, and I think that um, a lot of Republicans or conservatives um, are sort of browbeaten into having positions that they may or may not actually hold, not just by the Republican establishment, but by the Democrats and Democrat establishment who seek to box them in. And, uh, and I think that too often Republican um, politicians um, and candidates are not, uh, they're not, they're just not very good at fighting back. Now they're learning um, Tea Party movement and, and certainly the rise of Donald Trump are teaching them a master class in how to fight and how to take back a narrative and how to prioritize, you know, positions and, and so forth. Um, but I think that that's a really important part of the equation when you look at, you know, the burden of orthodoxy, uh, particularly with conservatives. No, that's a great point. Christina Bateri has been joining us. Christina is one of the founders of the Tea Party, my friend. Not necessarily in that order, by the way. Could be more my friend and then founder of the Tea Party. Sure, that's why she listed on her resume. The top thing is friend of Lee's. Sure, but uh, but anyway, Christine, it's great to have you on. You know, I love you, and it's always great to have you on the show. And uh, it's always great to talk to you. So let's catch up again soon, okay? All right, that sounds great. Great to be with you too. Love you, man. Christina Bateri, coming up next. Eric Allen Bell talking about jihad and telling his story of how he came to change his views on it. That and more coming up next. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Uh, Lee Stranahan, Braveheart investigative reporter, who is, well, just knows everything. Radio Stranahan, it's all good. Do you watch the news and find yourself thinking, I can do better than this? If you know how bad the mainstream media is and you want to make media that's better than they are, I started Citizen Journalism School just for you. CitizenJournalismSchool.com will give you the information and allow you to sign up for the free mailing list and get our free course, Building Your Own Media Empire. But I want to tell you about a program that is for people who are serious about a career in journalism. If you really want to make a difference, we have a program called the Citizen Journalism School Mentorship Program, where you work directly with me, one-on-one and in small group settings. 
And the best part is it's a fraction of the cost of journalism school. Go to citizenjournalismschool.com right now to get more information. Citizenjournalismschool.com. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. This is Lee Stranahan. It is 16 minutes past the hour. And joining us now, two, we, this, by the way, this is, a, I think, a first, maybe. It's two West Coast calls in a row, two West Coast guests, <clears throat> people in the Pacific time zone. Eric Allen Bell is joining us on the line. Eric, how are you doing today? Pretty good. How are you? Doing, doing great. So Eric's, Eric's got a fascinating story. Eric's a guy I've known for a few years. And actually, I started talking to Eric, and I remember it specifically. It was in the early part of 2012. And the reason I remember right. it specifically is Eric and I had a really long conversation. I saw some of the stuff he was doing, and I was like, I need to introduce you to Andrew Breitbart. You remember this, right, Eric? Oh, yes, very well. And I, I said, I, I said, Andrew, Andrew will really like you. You're, you're the kind of guy, you, this is the story that Andrew loves. And, and I said that to Eric, and then Andrew was dead within, I think, two weeks. So I never got yeah. a chance to introduce uh, Eric to Andrew, but I remember that very specifically. And so I appreciate you coming on today. I appreciate you coming on Thank on you. short notice as well. Sure. Yeah, so let's, let's just, for people who don't know your story, because it's fascinating, talk about the film you were going to make and how your opinions on the dangers of radical Islam have, have changed. Sure. Well, you know, my story in, in many ways is, is similar to yours. You know, I, I also voted for Obama in 08, and I was on the left. I'd say pretty far to the left, the, the kind of Noam Chomsky sort of left. Um, I had written for MichaelMoore.com and, and the Daily Coast, and I was producing a documentary in uh, the Bible Belt, America, about uh, reaction there um, to the building of, of a mega mosque, a 55,000-square-foot mega mosque. And uh, the local people were pushing back against this pretty hard for reasons I didn't really understand at the time. I, I, I really thought it was just a, a turf war. I, I thought it was just Christians not wanting Muslims in their town. And I had I had produced um, – I had shot about 300 hours of this and cut together a short version of it, went to Hollywood and, and raised financing to – to finish it and really do it right. I mean, really um, do it right. And along the way, I was doing my sort of opposition research just to make sure that the, the, the loonies who were against Islam uh, were wrong because I, I, I thought I was exposing Islamophobia. And as, as I was reading um, Robert Spencer's book, The Truth About Muhammad, I kept thinking there's no way this stuff could be true because if this was true, everybody would know it. And so you know, Robert Spencer was primarily just using one source for everything he said, which is what Muslims are taught from their own literature, from their own scriptures, uh, the Hadith and the Quran. And so I started reading the, the, these texts directly, and I realized this is all true, what he's saying. And from there, I went to read, you know, Bill Warner and uh, did quite a bit of research. Uh, finally met uh, Frank Gaffney and interviewed him and, and read some things that he recommended. And I, I just realized I... I had this whole thing all wrong and I had gone to my backers and said, I, I think we're, we need to make a kind of balanced movie here. We need to show both sides because although I don't think the people who are opposing this mosque are expressing themselves very well, I think they're more right than wrong. 
And I brought with me today, you know, the Koran the with a bunch of post-it notes in it and some books by Robert Spencer. And I set the stuff on the table. And they, they were looking at it like it was, you know, toxic waste and wouldn't touch it. And, and uh, you know, we went around a bit. And they, they, they basically said, Eric, you're sounding like one of those uh, right-wing Islamophobes. And here's the deal. Either make the movie that <clears throat> we hired you to make or give us back our money. And, of course, I had made a lot of financial commitments with that money. So that that decision did not come easily to me, but I I did give them back their money, and um, and then from there I, I <laughs> while writing for the Daily Coast, I decided you know I I might have misled a lot of people in some of the things I had said about so-called Islamophobia, so I'll just clear that up and and write an article you know letting people know what I found out about Islam, um, major backlash to that, and. Uh, so I wrote a second article. I just I thought I hadn't written a very good one. So I tried to make it more clear, like this is about human rights and, and really spell it out for a liberal audience. This is how they feel about gays, about women, about free speech, about critical thinking. And uh, Glenn Greenwald got involved. Loonwatch.com uh, created a little portal for everyone to write into the Daily Coast and demand that I be silenced. Because one thing that the left and, and, and political Islam share in common is they will not tolerate free speech, um, and and so anyway, I was I was banned from 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 the Daily Coast, and and I guess that's my conversion story. And from there, I met uh, David Horowitz, who really opened my eyes up on on a much grander scale about just how much I had it wrong about politics in general. You know, I realized I needed to mature. I was I was living in a world of my imagination, the world as I thought it should be as opposed to the world as it is, uh, largely as the result of thinking with my emotions, which I think is a common trait of a lot of people on the left. So that was a very sobering uh, and humbling experience that Robert Spencer and, and Bill Warner and, and a number of people on the, um, in the so-called counter-jihad movement and uh, have been a raging Islamophobe ever since. Well, and, and also just to, uh, to be clear, too, you were also in California, correct? You were, oh yeah. You were doing this based in California, and and oh, yeah. Southern California, right? And but you've lived in Northern mm-hmm. and Southern, as as have I. I've lived in the Bay Area. I lived in San Leandro a bit when I was growing up, mm-hmm. and then I lived in in L.A. for a long time. And sure, uh, pe- people who don't or who have not lived in California. You know, I I would get this when I moved to Texas, right? Or when I, you know, when I spent time mm-hmm. in the Midwest. Uh, they they think they sort of know liberals, but they don't have <laughs> any idea what it's like culturally in California. Oh and by the yeah. and by the way, when you're living when you're living there, and I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll highlight one part of your story and relate it to what I've been, what I've been through. So when you were trying to do this documentary and expose the dumb conservative Islamic yokels, right? right? People were kind of throwing money. People were throwing money at you to do that, correct? I mean, I mean, not. I mean, they really it, it did. I, I had more backing than you would expect to get for a documentary. I think writing for MichaelMoore.com probably helped, but there was a lot of interest in Hollywood to, you know, go expose the right wing. Yes, and. And that was my my experience was the first YouTube video I made. Uh, this was back in 2007, which was praised by Marcos from Daily Coast 
as the best political mm. video of the year. Um, <laughs> the first video, the first video that I made, it was a, a minute. It was a comedy, and it was just making fun of Republicans for a minute. That's every mm-hmm. Republican candidate I made fun of. I was brutal to Mitt Romney and Giuliani and everybody. And um, yeah, it got it got featured on Talking Points Memo and everything else. Within uh, this is no joke. Within two weeks, I'd been on CNN twice. Uh, and uh, I was meeting with the head of comedy development at NBC. So mm, that's wow. that's that's from from doing YouTube videos. And so yeah, then and I and I bet you've experienced this too as you move to the right. Mm-hmm. When when you when you work on the right, there's really not a lot of people throwing money at you anymore. <laughs> it's it's that. Uh, no, there there isn't. You know, when I first started this, I was I was kind of wiped out financially, and I, you know, decision I, I think I regret was was putting a little donate button on my Facebook page, and uh, I, I I was so criticized for that <clears throat> that I decided you know not to accept uh, donations. Period, and I haven't for the last four years. But that that um. You know where, where I was coming from was was brought into question. But to answer your question, no, they're they're not throwing a lot of money at you. The the media is is a left wing thing, and uh, you, you might survive as a right winger in media, but um, you're not going to find a lot of friends on on that side. It's 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 and I've been doing I've been working on uh, a series of articles about the institutional left, and so one of the things I've done the past few days is I put together a spreadsheet, an updated there's, – there's other versions of this out there, but of the top 60 institutional left groups, and the, I'm talking mm-hmm. about George Soros and the Ford Foundation, the Kellogg Foundation, and so on, and how much money they right. spend. And it is yeah. like 10 to 20 times as much as the right spends. It's, it's, oh, it's yeah. not close. It's not – remotely close and uh you know what i tell people is i said when i lived in la i worked on access hollywood i said that show mm-hmm. that tv show had a staff of about 150 people okay sure uh so you know cameramen and producers and writers and graphic artists and everything else and so i say okay so that's 150 people i said i knew the conservative his name was john he worked in my department. That's, <laughs> that's, that's conservative. Yes, that's right. And you know that that number is probably pretty accurate. If you think about the – One uh, in 150 is pretty high, actually. That's, that is pretty <clears throat> high. It's amazing that you found and, each other. Yeah, and it's especially true. I thought he was a nut because I was, I was a liberal at the time. So I thought John was a, right. a kook. But i got to say, no, I, I, I really didn't think he was that much of a kook because uh, – Ethically, he was a he's a good guy. I, I don't know how else to put it, but he was a guy who, even though I disagreed with his politics, uh, when I first I'll, I'll I'll just tell the story. I want to real briefly. Uh, when I first took the job, I was really broke, and I was talking to my wife or something like that, and about like I don't know what we're going to do because we, we're he, he just came in and gave me money. He just he just handed me some money. He said, oh, look, I hear you wow. have your problems. Yeah, he just he just said, here you go. He, he said, don't worry about it. He said, 
you know, you shouldn't be stressing like this right now. You're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. Here's a couple hundred bucks. And it made a huge wow. difference in my life at that point. Yeah, right, right. It was kind of a Christian-y thing to do, if you think about it. Um, and, yeah. Uh, and, and that's the kind of guy, that's the kind of guy he was. And so, um, but, but that's why I say I knew the, I knew the Christian cause it was like, that's, that's who he was. And it's not like the other liberals were like beating me up or anything, but that really stuck out, uh, interesting with me. Yeah. And, and, and so, but, but again, people, if you haven't, the reason I'm trying to, uh, and by the way, the story we're telling, uh, my friend, Brandon Darby, when he was on the left, mm-hmm. in Katrina, Michael Moore wrote a hundred thousand dollar check. Springsteen wrote a hundred thousand dollar check to help out with the mm-hmm. group of leftists. This people, you really don't have an idea unless you've lived on both the left and the right. You don't have a clear idea of how much easier. If and you don't even need to have a great premise. It's like Republicans are stupid or whatever. That's enough. That's right. all the pitch you need. You don't need. Well, they're not like. Well, what's your angle? Because we've done Republicans are stupid, racist, a lot. Do you have a sure. new angle? I don't, like, oh, I don't even know oh, if you great. need something. Indicated. It could be Republicans are white men, and and that's enough. And especially for people yeah. under thirty, if they're white men, then obviously they need to be investigated because they're probably racists. Yeah, and and you also it's very hard for people who've not been on both the left and the right to appreciate. Mm-hmm. So when you said you were reading the books of like Robert Spencer, you talked to Frank Gaffney. Yeah. Before before you read them, what was your perception of Robert Spencer or Frank Gaffney? What did you know? Like what what did you know about them? Because I know what you know. Um, I, I know what I've been and told who, um, by a number of people, including people who are financing the movie, was that they were um, opportunists whose job it was to manufacture consent for war for Israel. And they need to, they need a new red scare because, you know, that's how you control people. And the Muslims seem like the way to go moving forward because the, the, the cold war is over with, but that they were financed by arms manufacturers and the Israelis. And the idea was to spook us all into siding with Israel and attacking Islamic lands. That's what I believed up until about 2011. Yeah, and and of course, you could look at it and go, well, events since then, we've seen the rise of ISIS, we've seen Al-Qaeda, right. you know, resurgence, and you would think that people on the left might wake up. I had uh, my friend Cassandra Fairbanks was on yesterday, and she she's on the left. She was When I met her, she was part of Anonymous. She was at Ferguson on the side of the protesters, yeah. right? She's a leftist. And she said she said it was the Orlando Pulse shooting that really started to open her eyes. She said uh, when she saw it, it's such a clear case of the Islamic hatred of homosexuality, which right. is, and you didn't need the Pulse shooting to see that because there's video of gay people being thrown off buildings or hung. You didn't need that, but okay, but that helped, right? She said for her, the reaction of the left, because she said she knew somebody whose uh, whose son, I believe, was killed at at, at Pulse. She said the mm. reaction of the left lit- literally made her sick. So, so you know, what did you see 
we weren't talking. You and I haven't talked in a, in, in a bit. But when, when you saw the Pulse yeah. shooting, how, how did how did you what was your reaction to that, for instance? Well, <clears throat> I had a different experience. I, I hoped that a lot of people on the left would finally get it. And it's amazing. Yeah. It's like trying to convince a, a fundamentalist Muslim to not be Muslim. The, the, the people on, on the, the far left, and especially the millennials, I could show them footage all day long of the horrible things that political Islam is doing to women and homosexuals, and the response is always the same. Well, that's, those are just radicals. They, they misunderstand Islam. You can't judge the whole – you can't hold, judge the whole religion on that. It, it is very difficult to get through. Of course, if you know somebody at the Pulse, that's different when it's personal. But it is extremely difficult. I mean, we have we have manufactured a whole uh, generation of people who are just not very well educated, and and many of them have already graduated college and, and they're profoundly misinformed. So they have these stock answers, but they they haven't they have nothing to back it up. They just you know they just say, well you know most crimes are committed by white people. Well, of course, white people are in the majority. Most crimes are that has nothing to do with Islamic terrorism. Almost all terrorism is Islamic, and it is absolutely consistent with the commands of, of Muhammad, who said in Quran, chapter 3, 151, soon we shall cast terror into the hearts of the unbelievers. You know, And he's commanded terror numerous times in, in the Quran, as well as at least a couple dozen times the Quran says, imitate Muhammad. And that's really all you need to know about where Islamic terrorism comes from. And it's incredible to me how many people say, well, that's taken out of context. They've never read the Quran. They just heard that on NPR or they read it somewhere, and that's good enough for them. They, they prefer to keep their head buried in the sand. Um, I had hoped that with the San Bernardino shootings, it would shake people up. My, my Facebook page that, that week reached 9 million people, which is incredible. But I feel that for the most part, a lot of people have gone back to sleep. It, it's going to take something pretty profound for people to understand. Um, there's no such thing as radical and moderate Islam. There's just Islam. And when it's practiced the way Muhammad, the founder, practiced it, you get ISIS and you get the Taliban. That's Islam. And, and that's very difficult, especially for people suffering from white guilt, because the idea that a, a minority group could, could be in the wrong is, to the leftist mind, that's it, absolutely an unacceptable idea. And, and I think you know what I'm talking about because you spend enough time in that culture. You just it just can't possibly be. Everything has to be the fault of white capitalist male patriarchy. It, it can't be a minority group. It just can't. And 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 so the, the, you know the left is very dogmatic that way, and it, it's it's really hard to get through to them. Now, so you talk about something like like you, you said when you were on the left, you were in, into Noam Chomsky. For instance, right? Yeah. Now let me ask yeah. you this too, because I don't, th I don't think I've ever talked to you about this. Um, when you were on the left, had you read Saul Alinsky? Were you familiar with Saul Alinsky, for instance? Um, I was familiar because I knew that I should be, but I, I really hadn't looked into Saul Alinsky until after I had left the left and heard it talked about. You know, heard his work talked about so much among the right, especially from. Uh, David Horowitz, then I gave it a second look and realized this is what I've been doing. This is what we've been doing. This is how it's done. Yeah. 
you know, that you don't attack an issue on, on, on its merits, you know, using fact, logic, reason, you know, you, you would be, you speak into the emotional listening of your audience. You know, you attack a person's character. The facts are not important. And, and, you know, I'm just scratching the surface with what little I've said, but that's how it's being done. And, and even mainstream media, that, that that's how it, I mean, nobody can finish a sentence on these shows. It's all emotion. It's all a series of knee-jerk reactions. But you watch it long enough, you start to see something consistent that is that matches the uh, Rules for Radicals, which I think is a, the book you're referring to by Saul Alinsky. Yeah, yeah, Rules – that's the big one is Rules for Radicals. But, but yeah. yeah, no, I had exactly the same thing. I didn't read Alinsky until – after months after I met Andrew Breitbart, and but I hmm. heard about Alinsky on the left, and I was kind of like, well, I've heard about him, and what I knew was that like Glenn Beck hated Alinsky. That's what I knew, and yeah, I, I think there's this thing that happens. Um, my experience is, I actually know a lot more about the left now than I did when I was on the left. Does that? Does that resonate with you? Yeah. Like I know, it, it sure does. I know a lot, a lot more. I understand the organization of it. I understand the principles of it. I would, I would say, much better than ninety-five percent of the people consider themselves Democrats or leftists. There's five percent who uh, you can talk to, and they're generally activists, like they're generally community right. organizer type people. And I can yeah. I can have a perfect I can have a perfectly good conversation with those people because I because I know the language they speak. So when they talk about intersectionalism or when they talk about uh, you know homogeny or right like right when they throw those terms around, I know what they mean. Right. Um, yeah. But but most people on the left, I think. I mean, is that is that your experience that most people? Yeah, the there is a small percentage that they do. Yeah, there's a small percentage, and they do start with a, a coherent premise. I just happen to disagree with the premise, but at least there's some organized way in which they're building on that premise, and it's logical and rational within its own structure. But I don't find that to be the majority. I, I find the majority to be just kind of parroting things that they got emotionally wound up about. And I think that's deliberate, too. I, I think that's deliberate. I think that they they don't want people – to really know what's going on, because if they did, right. it's you. They'd know the trick. They'd go like, "Oh well, wait a minute. We're doing this. That's an Alinsky trick. I see what we're doing." Does right. that make sense? Right. It... Yeah, I think you guys touched on that with uh, you know Occupy on Mass. You know, showing how it's sort of a Barnum statement, which is you know a statement that's so broad you can read into it anything you want. So you know when Occupy started. Uh, and I was involved in that. They said, what is your one demand? So it's whatever your one demand is, just show up. You're, you're a part of this movement. Um, obviously, the people organizing it had something a little more specific in mind. But by being as general as possible, they could get the people involved, get them wound up, and mobilize them. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's amazingly effective. And We've seen since we did Occupy Unmasked, which was – people haven't seen it. I'm in the film um, a lot. I'm basically – Andrew and I are the co-narrators of the film, and uh, right. Steve, Stephen K. Bannon directed it. 
so the director of strategy for the Trump administration directed it. And I'm currently in the process of uh, co-producing and directing and writing and narrating the sequel to Occupy Unmasked, which is about the way the institutional left picked up under Barack Obama. So that's the film project I'm working on currently. And oh, um, exciting. That I spent months that I spent months uncovering. Yeah, it is exciting, especially since you know you mentioned David Horowitz. We had David on the show earlier in the week, and I I love David. I it just it's a uh, he he always tells you what he thinks, but also he was there in history. He was part of the sixties oh, and seventies. He he was right at the epicenter of the whole thing. I mean. Yeah, he, he's the original conversion story of being deep inside of a radical left yes. and, and, and not just waking up, but more than making up for whatever he did on that side, becoming, I think, one of the great thinkers we have on the right. Yeah, no, I agree completely. And, and it's just so uh, exciting to talk to him. And then in the course of uh, interviewing people for the film, I, I found myself the only way – to understand what's going on now with Black Lives Matter. You literally can't understand it unless you understand the Black Liberation Movement, Stokely Carmichael, right. the, uh, the Black Panther Party, the Black Liberation right. Army, uh, the, the, the way the weather under, the way the weathermen split into the weather underground, the way the SDS mm-hmm. became the weathermen, all of that stuff. Right. And so, when I went to interview David Horowitz a few months ago, uh, I had my research nailed. Does that make sense? Like I was very comfortable yeah. in that interview because mm-hmm. I had spent I had spent months, literally months, researching the era. And what I found is about the '60s, you can't find accurate history. What I mean by that is, if you were to tr- try to find the truth about the Black Panthers. Let's say, right? All the books about the Black Panthers, almost all of them, 99% of them, are written by people who like the Black Panthers. They're advocates for the the Black Panthers. And so they're telling a very one-sided story, and they leave out stuff. And and so it's like when I tell people – and I use this example pretty frequently, but when I tell people, like, did you know that the Black Panthers would, as punishment – if you broke the rules in the Panthers, like let's say you got the newspaper out late, they would whip you with a bull whip. Yeah. And people people are like people are like, What what are you talking about? And I said, No, that's what they would do. I've never met anybody who's like, Well, that seems pretty awesome. Okay, that you know, you get the newspaper out sure. late, you get bull whip, that makes sense. And they get how weird it is, but you can't find that. Uh, oddly enough, the best sources are not the books written about but about the Panthers, but the books written by the Black Panthers, where yeah, they their autobiography. Yeah, yeah, because they don't even know that, how crazy they sound, so they just say, "Oh yeah, we would get bullwhipped, but the punishment was harsh." But, but you, you know, I mean, that that whole era obviously is very romanticized, and arguably it's the role of each generation to pass on to the next generation the accumulated wisdom and traditions that have allowed us to survive over the last, I don't know, 150, 200,000 years. And the baby boomers uh, as, as a group have failed. And as much as I like to romanticize the 60s, it's intoxicating. 
the reality is we made a horrible wrong turn in that era, and we're seeing the results of it now. I think we've been given a second chance with Trump if we get it right, but this country took a horrible, horrible wrong turn. And, you know, so we've had a few generations that have come out of that now where we were, you know, I was born in 1967, and, and I was taught things that aren't true. Um, and, 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 and younger people have as well. And I think if we got all of the truth about, you know, some of those black liberation movements and students for democratic society, all of it, and, and made it public to everyone, the stuff that has to do with the black, um, the black movements in particular, I think a lot of guilty, uh, whites would say that didn't happen. That's not true. Well, you had to be there. It's taken out of context. You have to consider what they've been through. The, the excuses are never ending. It's, it's very difficult for somebody suffering from white guilt to admit, hey, this civil rights organization did something bad. You know, Malcolm X said that white people were blonde-haired, blue-eyed devils. Like, that's really hard, I think, for, for somebody who's born into white guilt to accept. It doesn't mean you have to become a foaming-at-the-mouth racist. It just means, you know, this, is, this happened. And I, I think that, that there's no room inside of the liberal psyche for that idea to live. Now, why do you, now how do you see uh, the alliance between the jihadist and the leftist? Because right now we have a place, particularly on campus, where the yeah. left is linking arms with Islamic radicals, basically. How do you, what's your sure. interpretation of that? Well, you know who really brought that to my attention was, was David Horowitz and also Jamie Glazov, because when I was shooting the documentary, um, there was a student organization that had, had formed a smaller movement to fight for the rights of this mosque to be built. And as I got a little more embedded with them and hung out with them and without my cameras, um, I found out they were all socialists. They were part of a group called Solidarity. And, and he, so David had brought it to my attention that this is a, historically there's been an unholy alliance between the left and, and political Islam. You certainly saw it during the, the Cold War being an obvious example. Um, not to, to beat a dead horse, but I, I think that so much of what's happening with, with the younger generation um, embracing political Islam as, as an ally, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Again, it's, it's white guilt. You know, it's, it's, if, if you're persecuted and oppressed, well, so are we, we're, we're misunderstood or we feel that it's our obligation as white people to stick up for everybody who's misunderstood. And, and that's a form of racism. You know, the bigotry of lowered expectations is the racism of the left. This idea that everybody needs you to come and, and save them or that you should expect people of a different color to not be able to produce at a level that you do. That, that, that is, um, that's the racism of, of the left. So I, I think that, that, that there's more than just white guilt. But I, honestly, I feel like that's kind of the main glue that's holding it together more than any particular ideology is an emotion. And, and that emotion is guilt. And you've, Not you've just guilt, but shame, shame, shame of, of being a white person born into a privileged country. And, and that gets played on, of course, that gets played on constantly. So how do you what, – what do you think the best way to sort of fight against that is? Because, again, I definitely don't think the solution is not 
will become racist. I mean, I no, I understand not. it in this in in the sense that there's a psychological factor. They've they've done studies that show this. If you call somebody something enough, it tends to become their identity, right? So right, right. People psychologically accept roles and stuff like that. So I think there's a real danger in what the left is doing. By the way, yeah. I think if you're yeah. called, if you call people racist long enough, and they're not racist, eventually they might just go, oh, "Screw it! I guess I'm racist." Then, if you want to keep calling me that, that's fine. Which I think is complete. That's uh, nuts to me, but I, mm-hmm. uh, I. I'm able to understand it, not that I agree with it, but I understand it in terms of I get how fed up they get to doing it. But what do you think the solution sure. to that is? I'm not sure what the solution is. Um, my feeling is what, you know, to me, a liberal is somebody who's to the left in the best of times and suddenly to the right if something affects them personally, their money, their safety. I think when, not if, when the next 9-11 happens, I think we will see a migration of the center-left people over to realizing Islam is bad. But I think it takes fear and anger. I don't think a well-crafted argument is, is going to do it. Now, that said, the, the percentage of people in, in this country who, you know, I, I, I talked to Dick Morris about this a few weeks ago, the percentage of people who, who are concerned about Islamic terrorism and and that affects how they vote is increasing. So progress is being made. But I think for massive, like a sudden shift in the collective psyche, it's probably going to take another major 9-11 type of event. And how do you think, now what have you said since we, since the election of Trump, you know, I I was talking to somebody about this uh, the other day. That was my wife, in fact, now that I think about it. My, wife, my wife and I were talking about this. There's a, there's, a, yeah. there's a weird psychological thing that's happened, which is I have people who were friends of mine who were, who were Democrats, mm-hmm. who after Trump won – now, they're, they're, so let's just be clear. There are some people who nine months ago were like, if you're supporting Trump in the primaries – I don't want to talk to you, and I'm unfriending you on Facebook. But then there were people who, after Trump won the election, were suddenly like, if you were a Trump supporter, you're dead to me, and I'm unfriending you. And my wife pointed out out how weird that is, because in other words, she would have understood it more if they said, if you support Trump, I don't like you, period. But it's not election dependent. In, In other words, if Hillary had won, I wouldn't have suddenly said, well, if you supported Hillary, now I don't like you because the election's over. Right. So you've seen the left triple down. You've seen the media triple down on their views. What do you make of that, Eric? Well, I've had that same experience. You know, my wife had shown me her Facebook and um, how many of the, the moms of our kids' friends we're saying exactly what you said, you know, variations on if you voted for Trump, I don't want to know you or worse, you know, all caps, a lot of explanation points. You know, you're a racist if you voted for Trump, I think is, is very, or you're a homophobe. And, you know, I think about, well, how are my children going to be affected by this socially? You know, if, if, if their friends, parents are convinced 
that anybody who voted for Trump is a racist and a homophobe, and, and I don't want to know you, you know, are they, you know, what if they Google my name? What if they kind of put it all together? You know, are my kids going to suddenly have fewer friends? Are we not going to have play dates? And, and so that's been a very real concern. You know, these, these are children, you know, who are affected by this kind of um, left-wing intolerance. And, and it's not just intolerance. They're misinformed. I would challenge anyone to tell me one thing Trump has ever said that's racist or homophobic. Just one. He hasn't. So they're, 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 they're on, on top of being intolerant, they're misinformed. Their, their ignorance is, is, is harmful to children. Well, and I've said a few times, you know, if you look at, let's take that for instance. Trump is the guy who had Peter Thiel, former CEO of PayPal, who's openly yeah. gay, speaking at the Republican convention in prime time, right, talking about being yeah. gay, which, by the way, Peter Thiel, Peter Thiel doesn't really talk about it. Peter Thiel's not a guy who wears his... Uh, sexuality on his sleeve. Does that make sense? He's a business guy. Yeah. So there's there's more to his identity than just that. Yeah. There's a there's a lot a, a lot more. And so right. Uh, he doesn't talk about it that much. But there he was. He was talking about it, and got what was the reaction of the Republican crowd? They applauded him. And then what was yeah. the reaction of Donald Trump? He went up and thanked them. For applauding him, yeah. and I said, if you if you want an example, to me that was the single biggest sea change moment in either convention, and nobody talked yeah. about it and nobody noticed it. That one moment isn't that amazing? Like, hey, yeah, yeah, it was it was amazing. It's like this isn't what Republican Party is this. Um, well, it doesn't fit the narrative, you know. That's right. Yeah. So they that, completely that ignored doesn't fit it. what we're supposed to believe about conservative people. And I think Milo is right. You know, um, the gay community is, is much better served um, by the conservatives. And it's not like the conservatives want anything out of them. It's, that vote isn't big enough to work so hard for. It's just consistent with conservative thinking, you know, that um, what you're doing is none of my business. You know, my opinions don't need to be legislated, whether I'm for or against. But, you know, the left is, is selling out the gay community by embracing Islam. They are selling out um, the, the gay community. And, um, you know, the right is becoming increasingly more brave and more outspoken, uh, outspoken against Islamic law and how it pertains to the persecution of homosexuals. And yet still there isn't quite it's not quite clicking the gay community hasn't quite yet understood the left doesn't care about you any more than it cares about women under the guise of feminism. These are just ways to get power. And the purpose of the power is to expand the, the size and the scope of government. Um, but they're not going to actually do anything for the gay community or women or people of color. And, 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 and that's the big lie about the left that I think people are, not quite seeing it just yet. I think there's been a lot of progress with the election of Trump, but um, I'm waiting for that mass migration where the left becomes this thing that used to exist that I can tell my grandkids about someday, and they think, really? Nuh-uh. <laughs> like, yeah, no, people were really that crazy. Yeah, and I, and I think it's, it's – and because of what you're saying, you're talking about how they're impervious to facts, which is really – you know, and yeah. again, it's, it just sounds like an, it sounds like an insult. It it doesn't sound like an argument, because, and it's not an argument per mm. se. It's 
It's mm-hmm. just true, though. It's just unfortunately true. Just an observation. I, yeah, I, I have had the experience over and over again where I long to actually have an intelligent debate about somebody with somebody on like I'll take take the issue of crime you sort of touched on before uh, Larry Elder mm-hmm. had a tweet earlier today he pointed out that uh, crime between black people and white people where one is the perpetrator and one is the victim right is yeah. 85% black perpetrators 15% victims does that make sense in other words in the vast sure. majority of cases a black person's a perpetrator and a white person's a victim. Now, yeah. that's just a statistic, right? It's 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 a number, and yeah, it's 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 no more racist than any two numbers, right? But you're not allowed to talk about that. And I'm fine with you know if if the next step in the argument for somebody is therefore black people are born criminals, I'm like no 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 that's not. I don't know where you get that from. You're, no, you're, I think that those, taking... what those facts do is they raise questions. They don't make statements. They raise questions. Right. Why is that? Well, I think that's a complicated answer that we don't even have all of the answer. But that it's a fact, we, we don't get to ignore it because it's difficult. You know, I often say the, the truth is politically incorrect. And, you know, it, it's true. The um, New Century Foundation every year still comes out with a report called The Color of Crime, Race, Crime, and Justice in America. And, of course, I wanted that to be wrong, too, and, you know, check that against DOJ numbers and other stuff. It's pretty much correct. And there is a a difference, and and the media is not interested in that. If a cop shoots a black person, that's news for a really long time. But, you know, the, the number of black people who are shooting at cops, that's not news. Yeah, yeah, and I think that one of the things that's happened is social media and the Internet. Even though you're not allowed to talk about it, there's a lot of people out there. This is that silent majority, right, mm-hmm. of people who notice this stuff. They notice people like you or me who are stupid enough to actually have the arguments publicly <laughs> and kind of out ourselves. Right. Well, and I've got nothing to they lose. Go, <laughs> Well, no, then that's the way I feel too. And but but I also yeah. understand why people don't want to jump into that argument um, because they could lose their job. I mean, if, if the fact is saying saying what you just said about the facts, if yeah. you're a teacher or if you're a fireman or you're whatever, uh, a steward. Yeah, no, I'm self-employed. You, you could, I, I can go on the radio and say that. But if I wasn't self-employed, if I wasn't self-sufficient, I, I couldn't do that. It's a form of fascism. You know, when you have one small group having so much control over everybody else and it's my way or the highway, and if you say anything in opposition to that group, there goes your livelihood and your reputation and, and so much more. Um, it really is a form of, of bullying. And, and, you know, what yeah. did I do? I just I cited a report from an unpopular organization and, you know, I cited some statistics, and so did you, and they're factual, and anybody can look these things up and find out they're factual. This is peer-reviewed, data-driven stuff, you know. Um, and yet, you know, if I if I had a job with a boss and I was talking to you on my lunch break, I could endanger my career. Now, Eric, we only have a few seconds left. Where can people find you on the Internet? EricAllenBell.com. There you go. Eric with a... 
C K. Tell people. E- yeah, uh, E R I C A L L E N B E L dot com or Facebook dot com slash Eric Allen Bell. Great, Eric. Always great talking to you, man. Thanks very much for joining us today. Good talking to you. Thanks for having me. You bet.